to Red Flag Radio. My name is Ros Ward. My co-host is Liam Ward and we are on Aboriginal land, land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're um, having some fun this summer uh, going back over the archives of the annual Marxism conferences that happen um, in Melbourne every Easter, except it didn't happen in 2020, which I'm sure you all understand why, uh, but it will be happening in 2021. So do not miss out. Whatever is going on, um, there will be online availability of every session. So, you know, uh, don't worry. Or, I mean, obviously, we're all worried about what's going to happen with COVID. But if you buy a ticket for Marxism 2021, it will happen and you can attend it. Um, and the way that the conference is being organised is to make that available for people around Australia but also internationally who can tune in online and hopefully some of the cities um, in Australia will be able to host in-person events but obviously that is all uh, to be confirmed. Marxismconference.org is where you find the program, uh, notes about the speakers, the sessions and this episode um, – I was going to pretend it was a su subscriber request, but really it's just my choice, yeah, I guess. Sometimes it's the perks of um, being the people who put together a podcast. So I think Liam was just saying that you really enjoyed this session too. I did. I remember sitting right there in the front row and, um, uh, you know, I, I think I was saying to you, I was never really, I wasn't raised, you know, in a family that was particularly into poetry or anything. So I never quite got it. And um, I remember sitting there in this session and, um, and just realizing the penny dropped about just the sort of moving, powerful potential of, of, you know, uh, poetry and you know, this kind of human aspect to it that was just really profound. Yeah. It really moved me. And uh, I think, I mean, so this session is, was called while down the craters, the morning burns. And it's about the poetry of the First World War. And Dougal McNeil um, is a comrade from New Zealand and um, was a guest at Marxism 2015. And he's been to a bunch of the conferences and is part of the International Socialists um, over there. And uh, is a lecturer, I think, at Victoria University in Wellington and um, knows a lot about the poets of World War One, or studied a lot about it for this session at least, but is a kind of literature kind of person. <laughs> I'm sure he won't, he will not be super accurate here, but, uh, you know, uh, he's that kind of person. Anyway, I don't know, whatever that means. I mean that in a positive way. But I think what he demonstrates and what you were saying there, Liam, is the amazing power of poetry to kind of distill a whole series of events into kind of single lines. And to do that with the experiences of World War I, which was just this planet-changing, life-changing event and, you know, um, an event that also transformed the 
the socialist movement internationally, uh, mm-hmm. cha- transform the revolutionary left. It was just, you know, pivotal in every sense of the word and devastating really in every sense of the word. And I think this exploration is more than just about poetry. It's obviously about politics uh, and it's about kind of the essence of life. So I was super into it. Liam was super into it. We hope you enjoy it too. Um, So I will hand over to Dougal. Anthem for Doomed Youth. What passing bells for these who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifles' rapid rattle can pater out their hasty orisons. No mockeries for them, no prayers nor bells, nor any voice of mourning save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells and bugles calling them from sad shires. What candles may be held to speed them all? Not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes shall shine the holy glimmers of goodbyes. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall, their flowers the tenderness of patient minds, and each slow dusk a drawing down of blinds. Comments, I'm a bit nervous because really this is one of these talks where I feel like I'm going into the family, you know? These poems, many of you will have known from childhood. They've been read and recited over many, many years. Many of you will have loved them and lived with them for a long time. It's certainly how I've experienced them. And when we talk about them, we're always talking about so much more than World War I. We're talking about literature for sure, we're talking about history for sure, but we're also talking about memory now, what matters now. And like any good family gathering, uh, it's going to be a loving encounter. Uh, to start off with, it'll be a little bit formal and a little bit stilted. As the evening goes on, I'm going to relax, uh, and then I'm going to say some things about our elders uh, that might be a bit upsetting, right? They're certainly, they're certainly upsetting for me in some ways. Okay, I want to praise, but also question this group of writers we call the anti-war poets. I'm conscious also, though, that I'm talking to an audience that will know, you know, a number of you will be familiar with these works, right, and, and, and the facts and the details of the lives and the writing. Uh, but I've been studying um, Australian culture, actually, in preparation for my talk. I come over sort of every second year for, for Marxism, so I like to learn the ways of the Australians. And um, I believe that if, if I make any mistakes or if I say anything you disagree with, um, afterwards, uh, just shirt front me, I think is the, <laughs> is the term. So just um, get stuck in. Okay, this poem, Anthem for Doomed Youth, was going to be called Anthem to Doomed Youth. Wilfred Owen wrote it between September and October 1917, and his friend and mentor Siegfried Sassoon supplied the title. Owen had been passing between Anthem 2 and Anthem 4, and he'd been sharing drafts with Sassoon. They'd been passing poems back and forth. They'd been meeting in their rooms and discussing poetry, ideas, the war, the way literature could contribute. They were both in Craig Lockhart War Hospital, Edinburgh, which was a building that had been converted to a hospital for soldiers that were suffering psychological trauma as a result of the war. 
I want to, um, I'm only going to have one anecdote in this talk, but I'd like to tell you one anecdote about Craig Lockhart uh, before I go on, because it's, it's too good not to share. Uh, I went to Craig Lockhart in 2007, it's, uh, I beg your pardon, 2008, it's currently uh, Edinburgh Nap Napier University, it's been transformed into a university uh, in Edinburgh, and a big part of it uh, stays as it was when it was a war hospital, and when they made the um, movie of Pat Barker's Regeneration, it, you see it, it's just like it was, it's really beautiful, if you ever go to Edinburgh, uh, get the bus and go and visit it. The anecdote though, which is not related to the talk, but is worth sharing, is that in the uh, cafeteria, there's a little plaque uh, down the side that says, uh, this university uh, was opened by Margaret Thatcher in London uh, in 1990. And I thought that was a bit strange, right? The plaque was, the, the university was opened in London. I said to uh, the organiser of the conference when I was there, what, what's the story with this plaque? Um, why would you open a, a university in Edinburgh, in London? And he said, well, it's great. We're very proud of this amongst the staff. Uh, Thatcher couldn't come to Scotland in 1990 because of the poll tax riots. And so they were opening a university and they realised that, um, you know, you have to get the great and good to do these kinds of things. But she just said, you know, there's no way we're sending a Tory north of the border. The protest, the student protest will be too rough. Uh, so I'm going to open the plaque in London and then they'll move the plaque up to Edinburgh uh, to launch the hospital. That, that, thank you, that was, that was an anecdote I didn't have time for, it seems. <laughs> okay, Anthem for Doomed Youth is one of the most famous poems of the 20th century. It's one of the very small groups of poems that I think we can assume a general knowledge of. Right? It's one of these poems that people's parents tell their children, you know, friends recite, you know as part of the culture. Right? You walk up to someone at a bus stop and you say, what passing bells for these who die as cattle. There's a bit of a chance that they're going to realise you're talking about World War I. You know, if you went up and said April is the cruelest month, you know, less likely that you'd be greeted uh, by a fellow fan of T.S. Eliot's. The World War I poets, the poets of World War I, Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, above all, are woven into the fabric of popular memory of the war. I think they're absolutely essential for us to discuss, not just for their lyrical greatness, considerable that, though that is, but also because of what they've come to symbolise, yeah? what they signify. Pat Barker, uh, who wrote a fantastic trilogy of novels, not unfortunately available uh, at the bookstore, but um, one I'd urge you all to read, based on the, the lives of Wilfred Owen um, and Siegfried Sassoon. Regeneration, The Eye and the Door and The Ghost Road, they're fantastic books. Uh, when she won the Booker Prize in 1995, she said, the song is like the Holocaust. It revealed things about mankind that we cannot come to terms with and cannot forget. It can never become the past. And that last but I very much agree with, it can never become the past. World War I became the image of everything that was going to come through the course of the 20th century. It was a total war, a total mobilisation of both soldiers and civilians. It involved the use of mass technology in war on a scale that had never been seen before. It's hard to picture the scale of the destruction, the horror. Poison gas, tanks appearing for the first time, planes, trench warfare, uh, mass slaughter of civilians, disease whole communities being mobilised. If you imagine 
Being in your 60s or 70s in France in 1916, you'd have been born into a world that was largely rural, almost peasant, you know, the world of the 1848 revolutions. And then by the time you're coming to the end of your life, you're seeing this almost science fictional horror of your entire country being torn up um, by gas and by artillery. All of this, as I say, became emblematic of what war meant through the 20th century. This was what capitalism gave to our class. Yeah? If, like my grandparents, you were born in the early 1920s, you grew up with family having memories of World War I only as yourself as a youth to go into World War II. You know, the Korean War, Vietnam, all the various colonial wars. The futility and the pain of World War I became a sort of shorthand for war uh, amongst our class. Yeah, if you think about your images of World War I, they're images of futility. The other story the war poets tell is the story of shell shock. Owen and Sassoon are of immense biographical interest because their lives speak so movingly to the horrors of war. They were driven mad, both of them, by war. I'm not using that term out of any insensitivity. I think it's the only term we can use to describe what happens to psychologies that were put up against such unending horror. Mutism amongst the working class, men losing the ability to speak, stutters and stammers amongst the upper class, visions, nightmares, loss of control. Then they were punished and tortured to get them back to the front. A whole industry of psychologists and nurses and a hospital system was designed to torture men to get them back to the front. Shell shock at the time was seen as a moral weakness, right? Something inside yourself that hadn't prepared you yourself for the manliness uh, of war. Post-traumatic stress disorder, in fact, was only recognised by the American Psychological Association as entirely the result of external stressors in 1980, and that's really uh, a testament to the anti-war movement in the period of the Vietnam War and the, the soldiers organising around that question. For most of the 20th century, the official message was, uh, if being exposed to death and destruction on a colossal scale causes you to break down, there's something wrong with you. Yeah? What are you? These are men whose minds the dead have ravished, is the line of one of Owen's poems. There's a horribly hallucinatory poem called Strange Meetings, where he imagines these encounters with the dead again and the crime of having lived. Owen himself, in fact, uh, died just a week before Armistice. When um, I was writing uh, a chapter for, for, for a book I ended up writing on, on Pat Barker's work, I had to read... Uh, a collection of essays called Hysterical Disorders of Warfare, published by uh, a Dr. Yelland in 1918. He was decorated and celebrated for his work with uh, shell shock victims. And he had very high success rates. Working class soldiers came to him with mutism, the inability to speak. Uh, he would attach electrodes to their scrotums and increase uh, the voltage until they cried out and spoke again. He tortured them until they spoke. He had almost 100% success rates until the men were returned to the front. And then those that didn't die very quickly had the same psychological symptoms uh, come back. Those parts weren't recorded. So there's all sorts of resonances in these lives and in this writing. I think it's worth mentioning as well, uh, Sassoon and Owen were both gay. And 
you know, you don't want to stereotype, everyone's different, there's diversity, but I think an association between homosexuality and, and sensitivity uh, has a good-seated historical link, yeah, because these were men that needed to have the courage to be open to themselves and to others about their desires and their dreams and so on. This is primarily a historical talk, but these battles matter now, because for many decades... The futility of World War I was widely accepted in popular culture, in schools, in historical works, uh, in treatments like this. There was a nationalist element in Australia, right? You know, the, the British generals mistreating the brave Anzacs. Like, let's not get away from that. But even in the nationalist element, there was an acceptance of futility, yeah, that this was mass slaughter and stupidity on a mass scale. The war poets contributed to that by keeping in circulation a voice of anger from the time. This is by Siegfried Sassoon. How to die. Dark clouds are smouldering into red while down the crater's morning burns. The dying soldier shifts his head to watch the glory that returns. He lifts his fingers towards the skies where holy brightness breaks in flame. Radiance reflected in his eyes, and on his lips, a whispered name. You'd think, to hear some people talk, that lads go west with sobs and curses and sullen faces white as chalk, hankering for wreaths and tombs and hearses. But they've been taught the way to do it, like Christian soldiers, not with haste and shuddering groans, but passing through it with due regard for decent taste. That's the sooner it is best. You'll notice the first stanza will kind of lull you in, these gorgeous religious images, and then the voice of the ruling class being turned against itself. Knowing poems like this meant that the futility of war kind of rang out like a bell through the decades of the 20th century. But the battles for these poets take place now in a very different and very worrying context, in the context of modern-day imperialism. There's been the revival of a much older war talk. It's sort of like shooting fish in a barrel this next bit, but, you know, cheap shots are still chop shots. Um, I read, uh, for, for my edification, some speeches Tony Abbott's given um, on Australian national identity. And um, in 2014, he described uh, the Anzac experience as Australia's baptism by fire. It was sacrifice on a stupendous scale. But what was the alternative in Britain's time of need and when Europe was at risk from Prussian militarism? The, the mind keeps boggling with that, man. He really is a toad. In the academy, I mean, Tony Abbott is, is rightfully a laughingstock amongst decent human beings, but in the academy there's also been the revival of serious historical works, right? not, not ransing works, serious historical works attempting to put the blame for the war onto Prussian militarism, to defend the British record, to make out that it was a war of liberation and so on. Right? This, is a, this is a serious dispute that's broken out. The war poets exist in a complex relationship to all of this. It's not a matter of simple reclamation, right? which is what I said about the family dispute. Okay? I want to I read for and against the war poets. It's worth saying that Owen and Sassoon become the image of the war poets in the middle of the 20th century, and the reasons for this are a mixture of literary history and politics. We have in our mind a kind of image of the journey of the war poet, don't we, right? From idealistic involvement, generally a kind of upper class or officer figure, joining the war for uh, 
idealistic reasons moving through to disillusionment in the face of experience. It's worth pointing out then that the vast bulk of published material between 1914 and 1918, including from working class poets, and what records we have of worker poets, the vast bulk of the material stays patriotic and uses terms like sacrifice and uh, uh, juicy and patriotism in quite unironic ways. In the decades after the war, particularly in the 1930s, Rupert Brooke, you know, if I should die, think only this of me, etc., 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 and other names of, of patriotism are the names most associated with World War I, right? Um, W.B. Yeats famously excludes Owen from his collection of modern poetry on the basis that it's, it's sub-poetic. Yeah, the material's too horrible, um, Yeats says. Owen's star begins to rise in the 1960s. This is partly for literary reasons and that generations come up into positions of power in publishing that they can circulate the work. Uh, it's partly to do with the liberalisation of the school curriculum uh, in Britain, but I think the primary factor is the Vietnam War, that students of literature are reading and looking for examples of poetry that speaks to their own experience, both as anti-war activists on the campus and as GIs who have come to be against the war. So Owen and Sassoon speak to a generation uh, who are engaged in their own anti-war activity. You think about it, questions of conscription, of the draft, of psychological trauma. Between 1960 and mid-1970s, these are contemporary questions. Yeah, they're war, they're war questions for people at war. Owen's stock has kept rising since then. He had 13 poems in a 1965 anthology. It's gone up to 20 by the 2013 Oxford Anthology of the First World War. Within the Academy, however, the war poets, despite their popularity amongst uh, general readers, so-called general readers, in the Academy, the war poets tend to be underread until quite recently. And I think the reason for this uh, is to do with what we could describe as the modernist orthodoxy in academic criticism, yeah, where poetry comes to be valued for its autonomy, uh, its distance from everyday life, its lack of clear messages, its avoidance of didacticism, and so on. There's both um, left and right-wing variants on this kind of elitist stance. On the left, you've got a figure like Adorno, on the right, a figure like Eliot, both not wanting literature of messages. The glorious thing about the war poets, of course, is that they are poets with messages, you know, the poems that wish to communicate to wide audiences. Owen, in the notes to his uh, collection, he's working on, his, on the notes to his collection, makes this clear. He says, this book is not about heroes. English poetry is not yet fit to speak of them. Above all, I'm not concerned with poetry. My subject is war and the pity of war. The poetry is in the pity. All a poet can do today is warn. That is why the true poet must be truthful. I mean, it's a battle, right? Comrades, I've got to tell you, it's a battle. The pity of war. You know who used that line to title one of their uh, you know, historical works in the 1990s? That rat bag Niall Ferguson, who's, who's become the sort of grand uh, Tory historian of current times, right? This is, this is all up in the mix. So they're concerned to communicate messages. Another famous poem, Wilfred Owen, Dolce de Cormest. Bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched to sleep, 
Many had lost their boots but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired outstripped five nines that dropped behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone was still yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim, through the misty panes and thick green light as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie, dolce decorum est, pro patria mori, which means something silly like it's, it's great to die for your country. Notice the shift in the poem from we to I to you. It's a poetry of direct address, right? It starts with the collective experience of the soldiers. We were doing this. It moves into I. This is how I was experiencing it. The final third of the poem says you, you, know, you who are reading this at home, what are you doing about it? The old lie. Yeah? So we have here, part of the tragedy of the moment is we have here a whole lost stream of poetry connecting lyrical achievement with rhetoric, with older traditions of trying to connect with the movement. Owen was a, was a, was a confused, naive, innocent, idealistic young man that got caught up in the maelstrom of the war. Sassoon's case was even more dramatic. He was known as Mad Jack for his, re his recklessness in battle. He was decorated several times for going out uh, above and beyond the call of duty, risking his life. These may well have been uh, biographers speculating, in fact, suicide attempts, you know, trying to, trying to get shots um, out of despair. He'd gone into the army uh, full of idealistic visions about what was involved uh, and came out of it bitterly disgusted with the war. He organised for this declaration to be published in the Times and to be read in the House of Commons. And I want you, when you're listening to it, to bear that in mind. This is a serving soldier putting this into the public view. I'm making this statement as an act of willful defiance of military authority because I believe the war is being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. I'm a soldier convinced that I'm acting on behalf of soldiers. I believe that this war, upon which I entered as a war of defence and liberation, has now become a war of aggression and conquest. I believe that the purposes for which I and my fellow soldiers entered upon this war should have been so clearly stated as to have made it impossible to change them, and that, had this been done, the objects which actuated us would now be attainable by negotiation. I have seen and endured the suffering of the troops, and I can no longer be a party to prolong these sufferings for ends which I believe to be evil and unjust. He was an officer, right? So he was commanding men in battle, sending people forth. I am not protesting against the conduct of the war, but against the political errors and insincerities for which the fighting men are being sacrificed. 
On behalf of those who are suffering now, I make this protest against the deception which is being practiced on them. Also, I believe that I may help to destroy the callous complacence with which the majority of those at home regard the continuance of the agonies which they do not share and which they have not sufficient imagination to realise. We have to say, as a statement, it makes very little sense. But as an act of personal bravery and courage and integrity and honour, it is an astonishing gesture. He sets himself up to be court-martialed. Right? He wants to be the figure that the military will go after so he can use his court-martial as a platform to denounce the war. The military have other plans, and recognising in 1917 how explosive this would be, uh, after the statement's read in the House, the relevant minister gets up and says, this is a valiant young man who's uh, overtired um, and is having a period of rest at Craig Lockhart Hospital. Uh, we hope no one will take advantage of his psychological distress. That's where Sassoon meets Owen, and that's where uh, Sassoon crafts Owen from a kind of budding amateur uh, into a great poet. Sassoon goes into the war with his head full of kind of flowery and overly poetic verse. Right, He's a, he's a bad poet before the war. And it's his anger that crafts his true poetic voice. He finds success in parody, in satire, in turning the language of the ruling class against itself. They. The bishop tells us, when the boys come back, they will not be the same, for they'll have fought in a just cause. They lead the last attack on Antichrist. Their comrade's blood has bought new right to breed an honourable race. They've challenged death and stared him face to face. We're none of us the same, the boys reply, for George has lost both his legs, Bill's stone blind, poor Jim's shot through the lungs and like to die, and Bert's gone syphilitic. You'll not find a chap who served that hasn't found some change. And the bishop said, the ways of God are strange. Base details. Fantastic pun entitled, Base Details. If I were fierce and bald and short of breath, I'd live with scarlet mages at the base and speed glum heroes up the line to death. You'd see me with my puffy, petulant face, guzzling and gulping in the best hotel, reading the role of honour. Poor young chap, I'd say. I used to know his father well. Yes, we've lost heavily in that last scrap. And when the war is done and youth stone dead, I'll toddle safely home and die in bed. Now, base details, I think, is a fantastic example of political rhetoric and the way in which what it gives you is a quotation of the kind of cliches of the period, the middle class lines of the period, then transformed into a satire being put against themselves. It's also, and stupidly I didn't make a slide available for this, but for those of you with um, sort of super keen ears, you will have heard the fact uh, that it's an extremely rare form of sonnet. It's called the Kirtle Sonnet, in that what Sassoon has done is he's chopped off uh, the, the legs of the poem, lines 9 to 12, with the torso and the poem, uh, the poem's end jammed onto the feet, right? It's a, it's a sonnet that isn't quite a sonnet. It sounds wrong. Yeah, and so the uh, dislocation that it's describing plays itself out in the form. 
So Owen and Sassoon are fascinating for literary reasons. I'm going way over time, so some of these fascinating reasons you may never learn. <laughs> They're popular works. Okay, they're published as part of what were called the Georgian anthologies, um, put together by Churchill's secretary, Eddie Marsh. Eddie Marsh was a kind of power broker in pre-war uh, literary London and during the war. These anthologies sold close to 20,000 copies. Okay, so they're poets that are getting into the hands of mainly the middle class, okay, mainly the middle class, but not exclusively the middle class. They're appearing in newspapers and so on. Um, contrast this with T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland in 1922 that took 18 months to sell 443 copies. Right? It's, it's no comment on the, the value of either poem, but a sign of what kind of audiences we're talking about. Owen and Sassoon are both working within and against popular and conservative traditions. Right? The modernists, those of you that, that sort of read um, mid-20th century poetry, right, kind of make it new as the slogan, right? break with the old. Owen and Sassoon, you know what you're reading. You know, sonnets, forms that you recognise from tradition, and then what's been changed comes up sort of from behind, so to speak, makes it an unexpected transformation. Note also, and I think this may not get picked up uh, in, a, in an era that's used to sort of Shane Warne offering, offering commentary and um, public television and so on, but this is in fact a shockingly vulgar language. Right? This is shocking in its presentation of the bald facts of the war. Bert's gone syphilitic. This is the first time the term syphilis appeared in a published poem. Right? Uh, I don't know about Australia, but in New Zealand, um, when the, the House was debating uh, the sexual health of soldiers and, and sexually transmitted infections, uh, the Speaker would clear the, clear the um, galleries of ladies. Right? The ladies are to leave, so they're not to hear about uh, what's going on here. Note also the way they take these forms, and I want to say they bend and buckle them to new ends. Let's listen to Anthem for Doomed Youth again. Notice here what passing bells for these who die as cattle. Right? What that's followed by the monstrous anger of the guns, the stuttering rifles' rapid rattle, the shrill demented choirs of wailing shells. In a perfect illustration of the alienation of total war, right, it's the machines that are personified in the poem, and it's the men that are as cattle, right? It's the human beings that are as animals, and it's these machines created by men and women that have taken on the qualities of human beings that seem to control their lives, right? So it's a neat uh, poetic representation of this, this question of fetishism. Notice also how difficult it is to read the line, only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle can pass her out their hasty orisons. It's a poem that is written in one of the most traditionally beautiful and lyrical forms of the language, and yet aims to trip its reader up, right? To make the message buckle and bend and twist and break down in the same way as meaning is in the war. Here's a less known poem of Owen's where I think had he lived, one can only speculate, but he's moving towards uh, a much more directly kind of modernist address. The Last Laugh. Oh, Jesus Christ, I'm hit, he said, and died. Whether he vainly cursed or prayed indeed, the bullets chirped in vain, vain, vain. Machine guns chuckled, tut, 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 and the big gun guffawed. Another side, oh, mother, Mother, dead, then smiled at nothing, childlike, being dead. 
And the lofty shrapnel cloud leisurely gestured fool, and the splinters spat and tittered. My love, one moaned. Love languid seemed his mood till slowly lowered his whole face kissed the mud. And the bayonet's long teeth grinned. Rabbles of shells hooted and groaned, and the gas hissed. Right, and you see here, I mean, Owen's starting to become involved in this sort of breakdown uh, of clear meaning, the introduction of noise poetry, the uh, contrast between working class voices and a kind of um, wildly death's head mask, a comedic voice of, of the poet's voice and so on. Owen and Sassoon both write as kind of insider-outsiders from the middle class, or much more than the middle class in Sassoon's case, but as Jews, as homosexuals, uh, feeling as outsiders to their class. And I think a lot of what uh, this gets picked up in, in the poems is in a kind of erotic fascination with working-class soldiers. Yeah, it's that strange thing about that line, gas, gas, quick boys, right? You're, you're having um, a horrific experience described to you, but, you know, this is an intimate audience, it's not being recorded, I can share with you that I find the line an ecstasy of fumbling, a kind of terrifically sexy uh, homoerotic line. Yeah? There's this sort of coursing sense of fascination with the working class soldier I'm caught up in this. I was going to talk about um, how their, their class attitude towards uh, the ranks changes, but um, I'm not going to have time. So this is where things get difficult in the family meeting, okay? We love these poems, don't we, right? We love the poets. We love uh, reading Owen and Sassoon, and we will uh, until our dying day, right? They're part of all of us. Lots gets left out. If we make them the anti-war poets, though, lots gets left out. What gets left out, for starters, is other war poets, this is a reasonably easy one to rectify. Just go and find an anthology, or um, my friend Harry Ricketts has written a very good book called Strange Meetings, uh, which details the lives of the poets. But there's a whole array of poets we can read, like Isaac Rosenberg. And they're interesting both for literary reasons, but also for what they teach us about how it's too easy to divide people into pro and anti-war stances when we look at working class lives for people's motivation. Rosenberg enlisted very early on, but he didn't join because he was a patriot. Right? He wasn't pro the war. What he needed was the guarantee of an income so he could send it to his mother. Yeah, he was from an impoverished family of Jewish uh, migrants into Britain. Uh, there was no stable source of income, and so the war offered him an opportunity uh, to feed his family, yeah, to make sure his mother um, could get a wage. He faced horrendous anti-Semitic bullying in the army and produced this very troubled, moving collection of texts. There's a host of other names that deserve to be known. David Jones, Charles Sawley, Robert Nichols, Ivor Gurney. Something else should give us pause, though, and that's what happened to these poems in their afterlife. Okay, they're rediscovered in the 1960s. High school teachers, university teachers, editors, anthologists who have been inspired by the anti-war movement against, against the Vietnam War bring them into public consciousness. Since that period, however, the ruling class has done things with these poets. We are materialists, yeah? We're materialists. And that means for us cultural works as commodities have lives 
in the world like other commodities, right? They get fought over and they get refashioned and struggle. And if we lose, the ruling class can reappropriate bits of our legacy. You know, just in the same way that we fight over other commodities, the ruling class can take things off us and they can take cultural items off us. And this is what has happened, I think, to a large degree with the poets of World War I. David Cameron, the uh, old Etonian Tory Prime Minister in Britain, in 2010, with a completely straight face, listed Dolce et Decorum Est as his favourite poem. <laughs> his favourite poem. And he said it told you about the horrors of war. No. Auckland Museum uh, in New Zealand, where I'm from, uh, at its Armistice Day celebration, I've never been to it. I should hasten to add, right? I found this out on the internet. I don't, I don't attend Armistice Day celebrations. At its Armistice Day events, links Sassoon's and Owen's poems alongside militarism. Right? They get read by generals at the Armistice events. American troops getting sent to Afghanistan in 2001 studied the poems of Wilfred Owen as part of their preparation. One sergeant told the Times in uh, late 2001, just by what he said, you can actually feel it, or you can get a mental picture of the death or the awful sights. This should worry us, yeah? You can get a mental picture of the death or the awful sights. I don't know if it happens at Adfer, I'm not sure, right? But, but in, the, in the training academies of the American army, the the officer corps are taught the war poems to prepare them, you know, to prepare them for the war. Now, I think this is in part to do with how the contemporary ruling class presents World War I. Right? We don't have openly pro-war propaganda. Right? We have a sort of more nuanced version whereby they say it was terrible, it was this awful experience that the soldiers went through, and to honour their experience we need to not glorify militarism, but remember Remember, no politics on Anzac Day, yeah? apart from the Prime Minister and the Army and the glorification of all the wars that are going on, right? But it's wrapped in this cloak of remembrance, right? And for the left, and I think this is a difficult thing for us to talk about, isn't it? They've been enormously successful at this. I don't know if you have it in Australia, but in New Zealand now, um, you get young kids wearing their grandparents and their great-grandparents' medals to the, the Anzac, and Anzac Day ceremonies are much less openly political than they have been in the past, and in another sense they're much more political than they ever have been, because it's become this kind of spiritual, cultural event that mass numbers of people um, take part in. I remember my parents telling me in the 70s and 80s that Anzac Day was dying out, they had no interest in it, and now um, a number of universities in New Zealand hold Anzac Day ceremonies that the student unions have organised. You know? uh, so the pity of war Right? kind of having a bit of a spiritual trip on the pity of war, actually serves the interests of the ruling class quite well on Anzac Day. Yeah? Australian militarism has been rehabilitated following uh, military intervention in East Timor, and a kind of sombre sense helps with that. I think the war poets have been mobilised to that. Now, like, of course... This is mostly just cheekiness on these part, right? These are outrageous appropriators that we're dealing with, right? They appropriate all our labour and, and, you know, they're, they're awful people, the ruling class. So, in part, this is just them being awful as they are in so many other ways. But, and this is where it gets difficult, doesn't it, right? Because we love these poems. In part, I think it's also what you can read in the works of Owen and Sassoon themselves. And this is why I said I wanted to question this idea of anti-war poem, poetry. Because it draws in real contradictions in the poems. 
The contrast of experience at the front with civilian ignorance. Right? Sassoon and Owen both stress experience again and again and again and again and again. Right? For honourable reasons, generally. But you can pick that up and you can turn it into this idea of support our troops. Yeah? You can't speak against the military. That sense of heroism, right? kind of sexy heroism, an ecstasy of fumbling. And the privileging of a particular sort of soldier experience as the poetic experience. Officer, male, upper middle class, British, Anglophone. What gets left out, and this is um, as, I'm, as I'm drawing to a conclusion, what gets left out are women, workers, and politics. Politics, literature, and contests over memory fuse here, okay? We can't just talk about literature on its own, and we can't just talk about poetry on its own. The, the poetry is in the politics. The uses of the myth of patriotism to disillusionment for current ruling class stories allow this language of sacrifice to get picked up. Right? Anzac is where we became a nation you know, in the course of invading Turkey and carrying out various war crimes and so on. The idea that everyone was for the war, yeah? we didn't know, again, has contemporary usage. In fact, although they were swimming against the stream, the socialist press had poets writing against the war from the very beginning. A minority, certainly, but there are poems you can find writing against the war from the very beginning. Here's William Cameron, who published in the Scottish newspaper Forward, which was banned in 1916 for its, its anti-war, I beg your pardon, for its anti-war views. Forward, a socialist newspaper, organising uh, the wives and mothers of soldiers who were facing increases in their rent. Like most working class poets, we know nothing about the author of this poem apart from its name. Speak not to me of war. Speak not to me of sword or gun, of bloody war and strife. Lord not the inhuman brutes of one and spilt their brother's life. See yonder bloody corpse-strewn plain where man has butchered man. Then write upon your scroll of fame. Write glorious if you can. See yonder lonely woman weep the heartfelt silent tear. It slowly trickles down her cheek for one she loved so dear. Come, ask the reason of her sigh. Why weeps she? What's her care? She mourns a slaughtered son, that's why. Show me the glory there. So there were poems being produced by people who knew exactly what World War I was going to involve from early on. Interesting for us as well, I think, because we have in this period, in some ways, the highest cultural point our class has ever, made, has ever managed. If you think about the mass newspapers of the Second International, if you think about the industrial workers of the world, the kind of the songs and the poems and the writing of the time, the mass sense of a socialist consciousness, we're dipping into a very interesting period. He is... Where is he? Sorry. The seamlessness of the talk exposes itself as a series of uh, slides. Here's Ralph Chaplin, industrial workers of the world leader in the United States, jailed for his anti-war stance. And there could be a whole other talk, I think, at Marxism next year on the culture of the industrial workers of the world. It's called Mourn Not the Dead. Mourn not the dead that in the cool earth lie, dust unto dust, the calm sweet earth that mothers all who die as all men must. Mourn not your captive comrades who must dwell too strong to strive, each in a steel-bound coffin of a cell, 
buried alive, but rather mourn the apathetic throng, the cowed and meek, who see the world's great anguish and its wrong and dare not speak. Something else that gets missing, I think, in our focus on Owen and Sassoon is the fact that women were active in the war. Against the war, I mean, active against the war. Both Owen and Sassoon have at times, I don't want to scold them from posterity, right, but I think it's an element of their rhetoric, they have a, a somewhat uh, misogynistic way of rendering the woman at home as the figure that doesn't recognise the reality of war, right? There were plenty of women that recognised the reality of war because they were either losing relatives or if they were working in munitions or other factory work, they were taking on very dangerous um, tasks and themselves losing their lives. Or they were women active in the socialist and anti-war uh, movement. Here's a poem from the US socialist Florence Kipper Frank, and she wrote it after she read about conscription in the Russian army. It's called The Jewish Conscript. They've dressed me up in a soldier's dress with a rifle in my hand and have sent me bravely forth to shoot my own in a foreign land. How oh, many shall die for the fields of their homes and many in conquest wild, but I shall die for the fatherland that murdered my little child. How many hundreds of years ago the nations wax and cease did the God of our fathers doom us to bear the flaming message of peace? We are the mock and the sport of time, yet why should I complain? For a Jew that they hung on the bloody cross, he also died in vain. So another example, I'm getting towards the end here, another example, although not a poet, but I have to read it because I think you won't have heard of her, is Annelise Ruck, a working class woman born in Zurich, who travelled the world working as a waitress and campaigning for socialism. She published a book called Ein Krieger durch die Welt, Travels Through a World of War, in 1918, giving her account of her times in Germany, France and England until she was arrested and deported from the US. And again, the book's in the, the National Library in Canberra, but we know nothing about her life after this point. She disappears from the records. And there's a wonderful passage in it where she describes the night train from London to Liverpool. It was packed, sandwiched tightly between heroes of the air and heroes of the sea. I listened to the chat of British soldiers. Only the English fleet can bring us victory, ventured one of the sailors. It was not a view shared by the pilot, who felt that the only sure way to destroy the enemy was from the air. Hearing them arguing, I could not remain silent. Victory, I told them, was going to come from below, from the awakening of the international proletariat. It was past midnight when I finished my deliberations. I didn't wind people up in those days. <laughs> the sailor who once nearly died of exposure on a life raft was ready to agree with me. But the pilot remained adamant that this kind of victory lacked British glamour, and as such, it was no victory at all. Okay, so there are, if you go looking for them, there are working-class socialist uh, women writers that we could read as well. I had two or three um, poems in that vein, but, but I've run out of time, so I'll pick them up maybe uh, at the end uh, in the summing up. But to end with a point, I think that Rug reminds us as well of the final most important point. And this is not to say you need to leave your lovers, right? Owen and Sassoon can stay a part of your life. But that for us as socialists, as internationalists in this period, 2014 to 2018, we're not allowed, following our own moral code, we're not allowed just to reproduce a kind of mirror image of the ruling class's tradition. Do you see what I'm saying? That if we're internationalists, 
We can't go looking for the English language writers in the Allied camp and say, well, there's the, there's the tradition that we're hoping for, right? We read them, we celebrate them, but the kind of reading we want to do needs to be in translation or otherwise across the literatures of the working class of the period. The German writers of the time, the Anneliese Rug, uh, the Berta Lusk, who's going to have to wait for the summing up, uh, the writers that came out of the experience in Turkey, you know, the uh, Cairo trilogy about the experience of, of Australian troops uh, in Egypt and so on and so forth, right? We're not looking for the kind of popular counter to the British narrative. We're looking for an anti-allied narrative altogether. We're looking for an anthology of the international working class. Because I'll end with Benjamin's sixth thesis on the philosophy of history, to articulate what is past means to take control of a memory as it flashes in a moment of danger. For historical materialism, it is a question of holding fast to a picture of the past, just as if it had unexpectedly thrust itself in a moment of danger on the historical subject. The danger threatens the stock of tradition as much as its recipients. For both, it is one and the same, handing itself over as the tool of the ruling classes. In every epoch, the attempt must be made to deliver tradition anew from the conformism which is on the point of overwhelming it. That not even the dead will be safe from the enemy if he is victorious. And this enemy has not ceased to be victorious. Well, Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, the anti-war poets, they are in the hands of the enemy currently. right? And they're in the hands of the enemy currently in this orgy of celebration of war and justification for militarism that is the centenary. And so the only way we're going to be able to reclaim them as works that can be read in the tradition of revolutionary socialism is by reading them as <coughs> anti-imperialist activists today. Our so you were listening to a session while down the craters, the morning burns, World War I anti-war poets. That was a session uh, at Marxism 2015, Marxism being the annual conference that takes place in Melbourne that brings together uh, revolutionaries, socialists from around Australia, from around the region, and international guests from around the world. That will be taking place in 2021, whatever happens so you can check out the program, book your tickets, and enjoy a really eclectic range of discussions that hopefully, uh, for you listening, you will look at the program and find heaps of things that you might be interested in finding more about. Um, and a bunch of the guests on this podcast will be speaking at Marxism, so you might recognise some of the speakers um, from Red Flag Radio and me and Liam, potentially, uh, <laughs> as well. So, yeah, enjoy Marxism 2021, we hope you enjoyed that um, highlight from Marxism 2015. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>